Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today, in celebration of International Women's Day, I'm so excited to speak with one of my role models in the field of ethnobotany. Dr. Nancy Turner is an ethnobotanist, a distinguished professor emerita, a fellow of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, and former Hakai professor in ethnoecology with the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria, British Columbia in Canada. Nancy has worked with First Nations elders and cultural specialists in Northwestern North America for more than 50 years, helping to document, retain, and promote their traditional knowledge of plants and environments, including indigenous foods, materials, and traditional medicines. Her two-volume book, Ancient Pathways, Ancestral Knowledge, Ethnobotany and Ecological Wisdom of Indigenous Peoples of Northwestern North America, represents an integration of her long-term research. Her most recent edited volume is Plants, People, and Places, The Roles of Ethnobotany and Ethnoecology in Indigenous Peoples, Land Rights in Canada and Beyond. Nancy has received a number of awards for her work, including membership in the Order of British Columbia and the Order of Canada, the Society for Economic Botany's Distinguished Economic Botanist Award, the Federation for the Humanities and Social Sciences Canada Prize in the Social Sciences for Ancient Pathways, and the Society of Ethnobiology's Distinguished Ethnobiologist Award. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Nancy. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Well, I thought we could just start with a bit of background and what brought you to the field of ethnobotany? Oh gosh, I've loved plants since I was just a little kid toddling around. I spent my very early years um, in the hills above Missoula, Montana. And uh, that was a wonderful place to fall in love with plants. And I was always interested, not just in the plants themselves, but how we humans have used them. And was always experimenting as a kid with, you know, eating dandelions and, uh, and making dye out of this or that uh, plant. So uh, by the time I got to high school, I heard about this field called ethnobotany. And I actually, by the time I was in grade 12, I had a copy of Erna Gunther's Ethnobotany of Western Washington. And I realized then that there was a field that, um, of study that people could actually go into. And that's what I set my sights on by the time I was, uh, in university as an undergraduate, I did my honors thesis on uh, ethnobotany of the Coast Salish peoples of Vancouver Island here, did my term papers on ethnobotany and um, I just got hooked from that point on. Great, that's great. And I think it's also notable that you really got into ethnobotany when there weren't that many women ethnobotanists. Now, of course there are, but um, when you were coming up for your training, there weren't there weren't so many professors, female professors at that time. No, actually, uh, when I started, 
hardly anybody even knew what the word was. <laughs> and, <laughs> what? What do you want to do? What are you studying? It was really fun. I had to always explain. Ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between people and plants. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a, a household word. It, it has been, and I think, well, thanks to, uh, well, Richard Schultes and Wade Davis and others who have um, brought it up to that kind of household knowledge level. But back in those days, I was continuously uh, explaining what I was interested in to, to everyone. And so how, how would you describe ethnobotany and its importance? You defined it as the relationship between people and plants. And why is that important for us to understand humanity's relationship with nature? Well, I think it's it's really important uh, for for all of us to recognize just how we humans are dependent on the plant world, and uh, everywhere around the world, we humans have these relationships with plants as well as with animals and with ecosystems in general. But plants are essentially the uh, uh, the original solar panels of the world. They're, they're what provide all of us with the energy that we need to survive as animals. And, uh, and so they, they have a very special place um, as, as the fundamental subsistence for us in terms of food, but also all the other ways that we depend on plants for our materials, for fuel, for um, clothing and wood and fiber and uh, medicine. Uh, it, and it's no wonder that everywhere in the world, people have developed these strong bonds with the plants that we rely on. And um, it, it's just so important to recognize sometimes it gets forgotten, especially if you're living in the, in the city and there aren't very many plants around. We, that link has been kind of severed, but I think it's really important to reconnect it everywhere. That's great. Well, one of the things I, I really admire about your work is your, your longstanding commitment to true, the true spirit of collaboration with elders and with communities that you've worked with over the span of your career. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that, of what it's been like to, uh -huh. to have these long-standing collaborations? You know, it almost brings tears to my eyes when I think about the people that I've worked with, the elders and the knowledgeable, knowledgeable people, um, so wise, so kind. And I've, I've been, I felt like it's the ultimate privilege to have been able to work with these people and to study and learn from them and have them share uh, knowledge and share a mutual love of plants with me. And there's so many, I started to write down the names and uh, you know, I could talk for hours on each and every one of them. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just start by uh, talking about Christopher Paul, who was my very first teacher. And he lived out at uh, Sartlip in one of the Saanich communities out on the peninsula and uh, it was his son Philip was the, the chief uh, of their their 
community at the time and came and spoke in our anthropology class. So I, uh, when I knew I wanted to do my honors work, I got up my courage and I phoned him and I asked if, um, if he might, if there might be someone in his community who might work with me and teach me about plants. And he said, I can still hear him. Oh, you want to learn all our secrets, do you? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, no, not secrets. Just anything you're willing to share. He laughed. He was teasing me, which I found was really a, a way that a lot of people have to uh, just let you know that you're accepted, you know, to be teased is, is a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then he said his dad worked with some language students and he might be willing to teach me. So I phoned up his dad, Christopher, and uh, every Tuesday afternoon, I would go out to see him with an armload of plants and we'd sit and uh, he would tell me about them. They're Saanich names, Sanchathan names and uh, talk about the camas and some of the medicines and we walked around his place. We saw he was still growing camas in his garden there. And uh, we, we hiked up Mount Newton and uh, looked, talked about the stories. And uh, he was just a wonderful, kind man uh, who, who I just loved. And he came to our wedding in 1969. I still have the gift that he gave us. And um, in his, his uh, well, his son, Philip, and uh, his grandsons, his daughter, are all dear friends. And uh, uh, yeah, so just that was a wonderful beginning. I worked with other wonderful elders at that time as well. And then um, worked often with, together with linguists. Um, mm -hmm because it made a nice three-way kind of support system. The, the elders were interested in having their knowledge uh, recorded and the names of the plants recorded so that their, the younger people, the younger generations would have access to it. Um, and so they were, they were willing and, and very uh, happy to work with us and to record the names of the plants and then have them properly transcribed uh, and have them properly botanically identified scientifically. So it was kind of a, a three-way partnership and, um, and some of my publications reflect that linguist, uh, knowledge, indigenous knowledge holder and uh, myself as ethnobotanist co-authorship. Um, great. Yeah. And so your work is not just about the scientific study of, of these relationships, but also um, there's a lot of effort put into conservation of knowledge and return of that knowledge to the communities. Many, a, a number of the elders have told me when I was working with them, um, they were worried that what they had had the chance to learn as young people wasn't being passed on at that time when I was starting especially. Um, and, and this was very commonly thought um, that 
people would say to me, oh, you're, you're recording this knowledge. You better get it all recorded because it'll be gone in 10 years. Wow. Well, that was in the 1960s and 70s. And here it is, 2021. <laughs> and that knowledge is still there. I still know so many people who, who have kept it. Uh, but at the same time, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, there was a time when that knowledge it wasn't being passed to the younger generations. And younger people were just reeling from the impacts of residential schools and all of the other injustices. And um, so it was a time of turmoil. And the elders were really worried that what they knew and what they'd been able to learn as children and their experiences wouldn't be, uh, they weren't able to teach their, their younger people. Um, but that is, as I said, that's changed. And uh, I feel in a sense privileged to have served maybe as a bit of a bridge over that really crucial time to bring that knowledge forward. And now there are whole generations of younger indigenous people who are just taking over and, and bringing that knowledge forward in a wonderful way. It's really exciting to see that. Great. And so would you say, Nancy, that language and the knowing of language is also closely tied to this traditional knowledge of plants and their uses? Absolutely, it is. Uh, language is so important. And uh, I, I'm not a fluent speaker of any language, but I know a lot of plant names in many languages. And, and I think that the botanical vocabulary is, is a specialized part of that, the languages. And so I've kind of focused on making sure that those names are, are kept and maintained and passed on because they really are specialized knowledge. It's important to have conversations day to day, but there's also the the stories and uh, and the the names for plants and animals and places and techniques and all of that specialized knowledge that also is needed for language revitalization and to continue that. That's great. Well, a lot of the the listeners on this podcast are really interested in food and how food impacts our health, how it impacts our culture. And I'm just wondering if you could give us some examples of perhaps um, indigenous foods and, and how they're tied to, to those landscapes. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I, I'll start with another quick story. And that is um, about my, my dear friend, the late Dr. Mary Thomas from the Shwetmuk Nation. I met her in the early 1990s and she became a dear, dear friend. And uh, she, I worked with her a lot and she had, although she'd gone to residential school, she had the opportunity to learn from her own mother and her grand, grandmothers um, as a young woman. And so she, she knew so much and was so interested in plants. People called her mother nature because she was just like that. She was such a great teacher. Anyway, she told me about, she, she talked about all of the berries, the huckleberries and the Saskatoons, what you call service berries in the States. And, uh, and uh, 
all of those with wonderful, you know, we tried a lot of that food, but she talked about this one plant that her grandmothers used to harvest down in the river estuary in the Salmon River at Salmon Arm. And she said it was like round, like a marble. And she said her grandmothers used to dig it and throw it up on the bank. And the kids would gather it up, she and her brother and sister, and put it in a basket. They'd take it up and cook it. And she called, she said it was called kokolots, which means jaundiced yellow eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very um, inviting name, but I would I couldn't think about it, uh, what it was. And then one of my students who was also working with Mary, Dawn Lowen, she was working on Chui, yellow glacier lily with Mary. And she said, that sounds like Wapato, Sagittaria, Sagittaria latifolia. <laughs> and so sure enough, um, that that's what it turned out to be. And Mary described how it used to be so common down there and uh, and they they really enjoyed it but lately it, it wasn't there at all um, mm. they changed the topography by putting in a railway and the highway and cattle grazing down there and there was no Wapato left and she was so sad about that that one of my other students Anne Garibaldi working on her master's decided to spend her research looking at how to restore Wapato Hokokwalots to the Salmon River estuary. And so um, she put in a number of, um, she trans transplanted Wapato back into the estuary in several places and put screens around it so that the cattle couldn't get at it. And we went back some years later, not, not, a few years ago, after Mary had passed away, but we went with her daughter, Bonnie, and her sons, and we went back there, and there it was. I'll have to send you a photo of Anne and Bonnie raising their hands in excitement to find this Wapato growing there so nicely. So that's just one example of a food that um, was really, really important for a lot of people, was widely traded, was used in the Columbia Valley, but also in the Fraser Valley by people there. And, and uh, more recently, um, the researchers from working with the Katesi Nation and Katesi researchers themselves um, discovered uh, it was the salvage kind of archaeobotany project. They found a whole patch of Wapato um, that was turned out to be over 3,500 years old. It was still in place. It was in a wet archaeological site. And they were able to, I mean, the, they had a handful of the tubers and they, they look like you could almost eat them. Not wow. quite, but pretty close. And they were embedded with digging, the ends of digging sticks in this archaeological site. So that just shows, uh, you know, how important that particular food was, uh, comparable to camas and, and, and other root vegetables. And, and I've always maintained that 
people were far more than just hunter gatherers. They didn't just randomly gather up these plants. They were cultivating these plants, the berries, the root vegetables, even the greens, the patches of stinging nettle, whatever. They were being cultivated. They were being trans translocated from one place to another, looked after. They were using fire and other means to clear the prairies and keep them going and productive. All of these things are, you know, part of what I've been learning over the last 50 years. That's amazing. Well, I think it's 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 so interesting. We think in modern in modern agriculture, we think of, you know, you have to have a field that's tilled and it's all one crop and it's all very, you know, you in a specific quadrant and so many crops per square foot. But historically, um, what others might consider wild ecosystems or, or untouched pristine wilderness are actually being managed by local people, like you're saying, with berry patches and the root crops. And um, yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's just, it's like a mystery to unravel, to understand how, how, um, how they did it and which crops were important. You've mentioned a few times um, camas. Can you tell us a bit more about that particular plant? I don't think it's, it's very commonly known of in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there are two species of edible blue camas in the, in the lily family uh, or Meliantheci now maybe. Um, but there's also a death camas. So people mm. have to know the difference. They both have bulbs. <laughs> And uh, they grow together sometimes. But these two species, the common blue camas and the giant camas, uh, ex the range extends from Vancouver Island and uh, coastal British Columbia south to into California. Cat Anderson writes about uh, camas down yeah. there. And east, um, as far as uh, the uh, Montana, um, the Salish people of the flathead, uh, formerly flathead Salish people, um, also used camas, and uh, and in this area, and and perhaps the most famous camas users are the Nez Perce, because the Nez Perce wars were fought over the the fact that the settlers were taking over uh, and grazing off their camas meadows, oh. and so the Nez Perce the leaders were so upset and, and we're trying to combat them, but um, that was a story in itself. But um, these bulbs, they take about uh, six years or seven years to grow until they're about the size of a chestnut or so. And uh, they're, they're dug in a very uh, sustainable way. Um, their, their habitat is maintained by burning over areas and creating these prairies. Mm -hmm. uh, and they often are associated with Gary Oak. Um, and so people would dig, um, we, well, we figured out uh, once when Christopher Paul was the one who taught me first about them. And he said the families would have owned these different patches of camas. And um, they would dig up to a 200 pound potato sack full per wow. family per year. 
we figured it out once that people on Vancouver Island alone were harvesting about 10 million bulbs a year um, wow. just for, for their staple carbohydrate. And the main carbohydrate in camas is not starch, but uh, inulin, which is a, a group of complex uh, fructose, fructan-based uh, carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And they're not very digestible to eat them raw. They're kind of sticky. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way to convert the inulin into fructose and fructans is the pit cooking, which is long, low-level cooking in an underground pit. And that's the way Chris Paul used to cook his. And, uh, and I learned about pit cooking a lot from another elder, Ida Jones, from the Pajidat Nation. And uh, we've tried uh, pit cooking camas many times now uh, over the years and, and other root vegetables as well. And it's really an important method of cooking that again goes back thousands of years um, right. maybe in some areas six seven eight thousand years um, can you can you explain what pit cooking is like what does the structure look like how do you do it yeah well there are different uh styles and different plants used in different areas but essentially you take a pit in the ground and the size depends on how much you want to cook um, because this method is used for cooking clams, it's used for cooking fish, it's used for cooking game, deer, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but for camas, you know, it might be maybe a meter wide and two thirds of a meter deep. You build a fire in the bottom, you get really dense rocks. I think I have a couple right here, actually. Oh, great. <laughs> These are really heavy, volcanic rocks and these are about the right size that they, they just fit in your hand you get about a hundred or more of these rocks from certain places you can pick them up and um, you you put them into the fire when the fire is going until they're glowing red hot when all the rocks are glowing red hot and the fires died down a bit then you start to build up your cooking pit and you have to do it very quickly. And you take out the unburned wood, you put a post in the middle. This is the method that Ida Jones taught us. Are you? Okay. Um, you spread the rocks out on the bottom and then you put a big armload of salal into the pit onto the rocks. And you get it wet first so it doesn't start to burn right away because it's really hot in there. And then you put sword fern over the top, a mat of sword fern. And then you put your camas bulbs in a layer. And then you put more sword fern. Then you put bundles of the other root vegetables that you're cooking, like springbank clover and silverweed tied in bundles oh. and in, interspersed with more sword fern. And then a big armload of salal on the top. They, what is salal, by the way? Oh, salal, Galtheria shalon. It's in the heather family. It has okay. evergreen, very fragrant evergreen leaves. It's related to wintergreen. Oh, you know oh what that, that is. sounds amazing. Yeah. And, and so um, it's a common shrub on the West Coast here, uh, growing under the conifers. And so uh, then 
you take that post from the middle, you pull it out, and right away you pour water in through the channel that it creates. And the water goes down right and hits those hot rocks and creates billows of steam coming out. And then you quickly cover the whole thing with a big mat, used to be cedar mat, then they used canvas mat, what Ida called cannabis, <laughs> canvas mat, and you um, put rocks around the edges and you cover the whole thing with dirt or sand until you can't see any steam escaping. For, for camas cooking, they used to leave it overnight, could be 24 hours. Wow. And, uh, and then when, you, uh, when you're ready, you open the pit, you pull back the mat, you're careful not to get sand in the food, you uncover it carefully and you lift the food out. The camas bulbs become quite dark when they're properly cooked. And uh, they're sort of like sweet chestnuts in flavor. And people would uh, dry them like that, eat them immediately if, if it was, you know, they were having a feast or a family meal. But often those, that pit cooking was used to process the food, the root vegetables, and then they were subsequently dried and stored for winter. And so that was a way of, um, and then camas bulbs were traded too. They were, um, Erna Gunther said, aside from salmon, they were the most widespread trade product in our area and the southern, uh, well, in the Puget Sound area anyway. Um, people would trade camas and as a really important um, trade good. Amazing. Wow. And, and I, I love how they, they're integrating these plants that are so common to British Columbia. I can, I can picture in my mind's eye these beautiful forests with huge ferns and, um, you know, it, it's just in, in the, the rocks all coming together, they're taking different elements of the environment to, uh, you know, to, to, to produce this amazing food. And what does the food, what does chemist taste like? Is it like a potato? Is it kind of starchy in that sense or? Well, because after cooking, uh, it, it has a high, um, high proportion of fructose. Mm -hmm. And so quite sweet tasting. Oh, okay. It's almost like candy. Some people would say, um, it's it's like a candy. It's sort of like a sweet chestnut in its flavor. Yeah. That's so, great. Um, yeah, and, and then in other areas um, they where they where Salal doesn't grow, Mary Thomas did pit cooking up up in the interior. And uh, she used um, sometimes fir boughs or sometimes even ponderosa pine needles and um, rose bushes, wild rose. And they also used a kind of grass, calamagrostis, timber grass it's called, mm -hmm. and, um, and put that under their food to protect it. Um, they also cooked it with a black tree lichen, Briaria fremonti in the interior. And the black tree lichen actually um, absorbed some of the, the sugars that were produced and uh, expelled by these cooking roots. So they, the, the lichen became like uh, 
I don't know, a capturing of energy for the, for the root vegetables that were being cooked. One of my other students, Stuart Crawford, did his master's working with Mary Thomas again on, on uh, the, the black tree lichen and did a lot of experimental cooking. And that's what he found, what he discovered. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, in all of your years of studying in this, in this field, Nancy, have, what are the things that have most surprised you or delighted you as you kind of gained this knowledge? Well, I guess I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. It was, it was one of those aha times for me uh, where I suddenly realized this is far more than what has been uh, recognized. Um, working with a wonderful teacher, another elder, Quaxistala, clan chief Adam Dick, in the early uh, 1990s, 19, 1994 or so, he was telling me about Huquam, which is the right, northern rice root, Fritillaria camsitensis, and how the, he, as a boy, he was held, he was hidden away when the police came to take children to residential school, so he never went, and he spent his time uh, being trained as a traditional leader, uh, clan chief and, and potlatch speaker. And um, he went with his mother and grandmothers down to the Tequilac root gardens at the estuary of the Kingcom River, where they grew the clover, the tachsus, and the tlixam, the silverweed, and the huquam. And he said, yeah, that was my job when I was a boy. I used to take the gagump off the bottom of the huquam and throw it back in the, in the soil, in the dirt. But what? What's that? What's gagump? Gagump in Kwakwala means grandfather. And he said, it's a little thing that grows under the huquam. And, and it wasn't, I still, I said, well, is that going to grow into a new plant? He said, yeah, that's why we did it. <laughs> You dummy. He didn't say that, <laughs> but it was so obvious. And uh, it wasn't until we actually went up to Kingcom and went out with Quaxistala down to the flats with my friend Doug Dewar and our students and his wonderful wife, Kim Rakama Kaludasi. Um, and he showed me the goggles. Then I could see it's it's not the rice-like grains that grow around the bulb, but a, a larger sprout that is often formed on the bottom of the larger bulbs of the huquam, the rice root. And so, yeah, it they they plant replant that. Well, the same year, that summer, I was up in the interior. I was working with Mary Thomas. And she started talking about Shui, the yellow glacier lily, Erythronium grandiflorum. She said, yeah, my mom and my grandma, we'd be up in the hills and they used to take this part off the bottom of the Shui, the, the bulb of the glacier lily. We called it the whiskers, she said. And, and they used to put that back, we plant it back where we were digging. She said, we bring the basket of 
those sweet down to the camp and break those whiskers off and make a little pile of them. And the next day we take them back up and plant them. And I thought, wow, this is so amazing. Here are two elders, knowledgeable people raised by their grandparents who had this information that nobody, as far as I could tell, had ever actually recorded before about replanting propagules in that systematic way, one down in the tidal marshes of the coast, one up in the subalpine areas of the interior, two different lilies, two different roots. These people didn't know each other, different languages entirely, doing the same thing. Well, that was an aha time for me. And it, it opened my eyes. I recognize now um, people were doing that. I mean, yes, I'd read about it before, uh, of replanting the clover rhizomes or, you know, other little things. But when those two stories and, and accounts came to me, um, that really hit me on the head. <laughs> and so then I started looking at all the other ways that people have been cultivating their plants and their, their habitats at many different scales from just the individual gagump scale right up to the landscape scale and uh, all the different things that they did, the, the governance systems that promoted that and the education systems, how children are taught those things. From an, from an early age, from the time they're toddling around. Wow, you know. it's living sustainable sustainability. It's 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 that's, that's amazing. Well, and and this kind of ties into my next question, and that is, what advice can you give to um, students or um, scholars that are interested in entering into the field of ethnobotany? Um, what are some of the big lessons that you've learned and the techniques that you use and how to be open to receiving such knowledge um, that you may not immediately see? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, starting with what I call a mutual love of plants is really important, I think, because without exception, the elders that I've worked with um, we've connected at that level right off the bat. Um, so, you know, being familiar with plants in, in your own world to start with is, is a wonderful advantage. Um, also being um, what I'd call a, a perpetual student, <laughs> always being wanting to learn and recognizing you know, how important it is to be a student and to, and to recognize that, yes, we all know things, but there's so much we don't know. And I will never stop learning all of this. And I think um, the elders that I've worked with have appreciated uh, that I really genuinely think their knowledge is really important. And, um, and that makes them, I think, willing to share it with me. Um, 
I, let's see, what else can I, advice can I give? I, some, I, I can hear Dr. Margaret Cy Wallace and Bella Kula saying, you white people ask too many questions. <laughs> and uh, I think that's one thing we, we are so eager to learn that we sometimes jump into, uh, try to push too, too hard. And I can't tell you the number of times when I've sat with someone and I've asked a question and the, the answer that they give makes me think they didn't hear my question at all because they start off and they start telling a story about something. And to me, I couldn't see the connection. I thought they were just telling me something else. So I listened and then all of a sudden, bingo, they come right back and answer that question in a beautiful way that I never could have anticipated. So, you know, patience, um, another elder I work with, Mayani, Dr. Daisy Seawood Smith said, she was always taught by the elders, you use these and these before you use this. <laughs> and that's a good advice for any of us, I think. Um, don't, don't try and ask too many questions right away, but be willing to listen and observe and participate and help out in any way you can. Find, your, find a way to make yourself useful to people. Uh, take them out berry picking. Often elders um, who are so knowledgeable, um, they might be, they, they love getting out. They love going berry picking. And often their family might be working and, and maybe busy and not able to get them out as much as they'd like. So if you can fulfill that role and help uh, get them out where they love to be and be a part of it, it's a wonderful way to learn out outdoors, out in the, in the hills or the valleys and on the shoreline, whatever, uh, where they love to be and where it's really fun to be with them. Great. Some of my favorite memories of working with, with elders and healers um, in Europe, where I've done a lot of my research in the Mediterranean, you know, some of the, the, the most enlightening days have been those where I was just helping with processing herb bundles, you know, going out and helping them collect or tying these up and setting them aside for drawing and just having that, that loose conversation and just enjoying each other's company and being there to listen and learn from them what they wanted to share. I think that's that's definitely an amazing way to learn. Yeah, it's the best way to learn and it's it's so much fun. And uh, and then you feel like you're helping, you're being useful too. So that's always nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, as we as we get close to wrapping up, Nancy, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about you know, where do you see the future of the field of ethnobotany? Um, you were able to get in on the game early on when it was really still an emerging field in terms of like the modern scientific version of ethnobotany. Um, and where do you think we're going? And, and what roles do you think that this field can play to better the world, better humanity? You know, what can ethnobotanists do? I think ethnobotanists can be a, 
support system, I guess you could say, for Indigenous peoples and knowledge holders all over the world, um, whose knowledge has often been suppressed, has often been under-recognized, has often been um, taken without permission. Um, and so I, I see ourselves as, as being supporters of knowledge holders of indigenous people, of local people, um, and allies uh, of these people. Um, because we have been privileged to have, uh, as, as, as trained ethnobotanists, we've been privileged to have uh, education in the second post-secondary institutions. And we might, uh, we might have access to different services and different people than uh, th that local people don't have we can serve we can be servants mm -hmm. to these people and we can help them and support them to regain what they've lost um, and to give them back the power over their own lives their own lands their own knowledge and uh, and that's the way, that's the most just way that, that anything can be. There's been a lot of movement since I started. When I started, there was nothing in the way of like ethics, um, research ethics. There were no conversations like that. I was more or less um, just trying to make my own way and do the best that I could um, to be ethical in my approach. Um, but there were no guidelines or anything like that. And so that's something that's changed for the better, I think, that um, yes, it's, it's onerous to go through an ethics, research ethics application process, but it's also really, really important um, to recognize to, that you need to get permission from people to document uh, things and you need to make sure that they're okay with it and you need that they need to know what you plan to do with the information and that's that's um, all part of that and with the declaration the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and even before that with the uh, UN UNDRIP um, uh, and uh, UNSAID um, conference on Environment and Development and what came out of that, uh, the, the Convention on Biodiversity. Um, and before that, the Declaration of Belém that came from ethnobotanists uh, like, like Daryl Posey. Um, there's been a you know, continuous support for, uh, for recognizing the rights of indigenous peoples and local peoples. And I think as ethnobotanists, we've been played a, a role in that um, raising awareness and we can continue to play that role and continue to find a way to help in conservation and restoration, but all um, done with in collaboration with, in alliance with the knowledge holders that we work with. Absolutely. I think that's that's the key is collaboration and ethical engagement are so important. And 
I mean, I think it is to our advantage that now we do have better guidance oh, you know, that's out there, that these codes of ethics have been developed. So there is a, there's a roadmap now that young scholars can follow. I think that's, that's really great. Well, Nancy, this has been so much fun speaking with you. Do, do you have any um, last last things you'd like to add or share? Or is, is there a place where um, people can find your books? I know you've written extensively on these themes. Thanks, Cassie. I've really enjoyed it too. Um, my books have been variously published in different places um, to the, the Ancient Pathways and the most recent book plants people in places um, are published through mcgill queen's university press and so you can go to their website and and find out how to get them um, other books i have a book coming out uh, that i edited uh, called loose teams plants it's with harbor publishing and it should be out in the next few months. And Luce Team is an elder I've worked with for many years. Dr. Luce Team, Arvid Charlie of the Cowichan Nation, Hokumitnam. And uh, he was raised by his grandparents and great grandfather and very, very knowledgeable man um, who, who uh, really um, gifted me with being able to work with him and record his knowledge in this book. And so that, that should be out soon. And Harbor Publishing has also taken over the Plants of Haidegui book. The third edition uh, should be out any day now from them. And other books are, are out of print, but uh, I think the Earth's Blanket is still in, in print through um, Douglas and McIntyre, which is really Harbor Publishing again. That's yeah, great. so probably on the web, you can track down things. Yeah, well, I'll be sure to um, add links also on the podcast uh, website for this. This is great and you write so beautifully and you've done such amazing work and it's, it's just been a privilege um, to speak with you today. Thanks so much, oh, Thanks so much. I enjoyed it too. Take good care, Cassie. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded remotely on Zoom during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us on all major podcast streaming services. If you'd like to see the video to this episode, be sure to head to our Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel and click on the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.